Hey everybody, it's Michael Martin. Thank you for being here. So, a couple questions come in about back testing. So I figured I'd put them all together and have like one episode that speaks to a few things on back testing. Back testing, so we're on the same page here, is not chart reading. All right, it involves a different type of software. Uh, which some people refer to as a trading engine or a simulator. Um, probably a few names for it. Um, basically, what you do is think of it like a, a spreadsheet. For those of you who might have used Lotus 1, 2, 3, or you use Excel and you're running macros to harvest data, that's largely what these simulators do, but the macros are kind of built in and you get to click and choose some of the parameters that you want. You run the data through it and then it gives you the results of how you would have done. Now what's tricky is that you need to get the data, the data being whatever the instruments are that you want to trade, if it's stocks, options, or commodities, interbank, foreign exchange, whatever it might be. You can certainly do all of it. Typically the models or the trading models that you would use for each are different from one another. And the commodity models tend to be very good for commodities, uh, not necessarily great for stocks. And that would make some kind of sense, whether it has to do anything with it or not, in, in, in how they behave. Stocks are secular, and commodities tend to be cyclical. So you can choose a whole bunch of things like your indicators, your parameters, you can obviously choose your bet size, you could add in data for slippage and skid, you can put in commissions and fees. And then of course, you have the three crown jewels to any system, which is your entries, your exits and your position sizing. So uh, a couple things you want to be careful about, though, in that your data, you want to make sure that you are including failures. Because if you get any data set, like for in today's day and age, of the things that trade, right, all you have are the survivors, meaning the stocks, or say we're talking about equities, all you have today are the stocks that have made it, or have yet to go bankrupt, or have yet to be acquired. And I've mentioned this before, so I apologize if it seems repetitive, but it's worth noting, in that, you know, for companies like Man Financial or Refco or Bear Stearns or Enron or even something like GTE, which I think became sort of like uh, Verizon, perhaps um, other things that were acquired. You know, they're not listed anymore, so the data's not there. But you would want to know if you're going to simulate, you'd want to be it, have it be as realistic as possible. So you have to add back in the things that you can't see anymore it wouldn't occur to most people. Now, you don't have to do that. Two, it's going to cost you money. You have to buy that data. It's not readily available, nor do you just check a box when you sign up for these things and they'll include it. You know, you have to go get it. So that means extra money. So then you have to say to yourself, do I really care? In my opinion, you should, but you should do what you think is best. Um, um, so at any rate, you know, we're looking at adding back in the failures, the ones that don't exist anymore, because you'd want to know on two fronts. If you're a long-only investor, it probably would have helped to know if you're buying on pullbacks, 
how that would have worked in the financial crisis in the mid to late 2000s, right? Because some of those companies got delisted and went bankrupt. If you did have a strategy that was able to focus on sectors and you happened to own a bunch of the regional banks after Glass-Steagall had been repealed, you'd want to know how your system performed. Did it capture those names that were eventually, you know, takeover candidates or merger candidates like I probably have mentioned Bank Boston, First Tennessee. There's a million of them um, that were acquired by the larger companies that, you know, said, hey, look, We've got people who are perhaps trained, but more importantly, we have assets and we have clients who own those assets. Those assets might need to be managed and those clients might need estate planning, long-term care. They might need a whole host of things. So you can simulate that to see how your model would have done because if there's other industries or sectors of the economy where there would be some consolidation or divestiture, it would be nice to know how your model performed with real data over a certain period of time? Did it miss the move or did it capture it handsomely? What happened to your risk? You know, did your did you, the names that you purchase grow to be unwieldy? Did you have to cut your risk on some of them, right? Especially if you're an investment advisor and you're building your own portfolios, you're probably hugging the 40 Act, right? Whereas you're not committing more than 5% of your client assets to any one particular name, even though it can grow beyond that, right? So it's probably specific to each of you in your firms but you want to be mindful of that from a risk management standpoint um then you have to say okay well what currency am i looking at right because then you can find a way to hedge you also get to you know the tick sizes are built in for the commodity futures as are the standardized sizes you know and what people love to do is to say well i'm going to use keltner channels then i'm going to if that doesn't work i'm going to try bollinger I'll use uh, ATR or I'll use standard deviation or I'm going to use, you know, moving average crossovers. And the idea is, is that it's like a video game for traders and that you can simulate anything under the sun, right? But you have to remember that the simulators aren't necessarily cheap. There are several thousand, so depending on who's paying for it, you might think that that's expensive. Uh, the data, too, is a subscription for the most part. Now, you can get, probably get 10 years of data for free, but it might be like 1994 to 2004, you know? So what would that? That would probably include September 11th, but it wouldn't include, you know, the subprime morass in the mid to late 2000s, for example. It also wouldn't include some of the recent stuff like, the effect of COVID-19 and the, the downward pressure that it caused on stocks globally. So this is all important stuff because it would be good to know ahead of time. Now, I'm, in, I'm careful to say that these things aren't necessarily predictive, but I also know that trading models don't necessarily go from being fantastically great to horrible overnight. Trading st markets evolve, and so will you as a person. But I haven't really tested anything that had a strong sense of positive expected value for the trade and then flip and go negative and never come back. Yes, there have been winning periods, and there'll be drawdowns, and uh, those are part of life. 
but that also is important to know. So if you had a particular trading style that you knew created, you know, a 23% compounded annual growth rate over 20 years, which you might market as being twice what the market's done, you'd want to know, like, well, what drawdowns did I have to invite, right? Because you get those two. You not only get the upside, you get the drawdown, right? So, you know, how do you, how would you have behaved, right? Because that's the, that's the, the tough part of trading. It's easy to make money, but then when things change, and we're going to talk about this probably tomorrow, you have to be proactive to protect your capital, even if you've made monster gains. No one wants to sell because they want the party to keep going. But I think it's important if you have a certain trading style, regardless of the asset class, that you know that your trading style has positive expected value. That, to me, is the most important thing. And then two... What was the magnitude of the drawdown and how long did it last? Because that's, you know, for those of you that are running client money, those are the times where you're going to want to be super proactive in your client service. Because your clients are super happy when they're making money, but when they're flat to down, you know, they typically want answers. And if you have a company where you're actually serving advisors, then, you know, they may want answers as well. So, you know, purely systematic folks like Bill Dunn, who's probably, you know, will already go down as one of the greatest ever, has had a period of time. And I remember seeing this, so I don't know if I have the numbers exactly right, but they're kind of close to this, right? Where he was down three years in a row, 15% a year for three years, which brings you close to you know, 40, 50% drawdown on your original capital. From what I understand, Dunn's running a billion dollars, right? So it doesn't mean that you're out of business. It doesn't mean that you suck. It means that drawdowns happen to everybody. And if you want to be a trader or trade like a pro trader, losses are part of the business. That means drawdowns are going to be part of who you are and part of what you do. Every system has them. Every chart reader has them. Nothing you could do about it. So you just want to be mindful of these things so that you know what you're getting into ahead of time. Because what looks really, really good that could have worked in the last five years, it's interesting, but who cares, right? That goes under the hot hand fallacy. You want to really know how your ethos would have done over several market cycles and through as many black swans as possible. So that means you might want to go back all the way to 95 because you want to see things like the big events that people traded, the market correction of 87. What did you know the trade look like that they did to, uh, in the Bank of England on Black Wednesday? Uh, what did it look like when the Thai bot was devalued or the Argentinian peso was depegged? What did it look like when the ruble collapsed and the Russians defaulted on their bonds. Because all those things have shakeout impact, right? There's a first level of, of blow up in the actual instrument, but then they have reverberations and aftershocks in other parts of the market. Lest we forget, you know, long-term capital management. You know, what happened in the market during that time? People have a really bad sense of history, right? They just want to focus on making money tomorrow, but oftentimes you can see that 
although it might not exactly be the same, you know, what happens if some currencies that you know are also under pressure and eventually get reevaluated or delinked or what have you, right? And then what happens to the equity markets in those regions? That would be important stuff to know. That can help you develop an ethos. It can help you even if you are a chart reader. Because if you're a chart reader, how are you going back 25 years to look what happened in the daily data 25 years ago? I'm going to guess that 99% of you are looking at six months charts with yesterday or today being the most recent day. And that's great. But you need to have a sense of history because all that history is very, very valuable. Because even if it doesn't happen the same way in that particular instrument, there'll be other scenarios where they'll, you know, the history will rhyme, as they say. One little proviso, and I very rarely talk about technical things when you can't see them because that just does nothing but <laughs> frustrate your, your, your audience, is I don't and I never have used when I've back-tested you know, commodity systems what we call continuous charts. Um, you know, they don't exist in nature. Each delivery month has its own supply and demand, right, based on, especially if it's a physical commodity where there's a crop year, for example. And so as things change in the world, each of those, even though the months on the strip, right, uh, have high correlation to one another, I look at them as independent instruments. Again, even though it's the same underlying. So for example, if you looked at natural gas, you know, the October behaves differently from December. Um, and if you don't believe me, just look at the Octi spread in natural gas. If you want even more excitement in Gas Vegas, you can look at the March-April and see how that behaves, right? March-April is kind of leaving the winter, kind of coming into the spring, that kind of deal. So you can see that those months behave very, very differently, yet it's the same commodity. And the spreads can widen and they can narrow. So I never found it knowing that, that it ever made sense to me intellectually or spiritually to try to splice a bunch of contracts together to try to simulate a trading model. Because in that fabrication, those prices might not have existed in real life. And that can be misleading in your results. Again, even though it's not predictive, I'm always wanting to figure out what's the worst case scenario. So if I could have traded a certain model but my results could have been worse, then I absolutely want to know that more than anything. I always want to know the worst case. How much could I have lost? What was the drawdown? And there you have it. I don't look for things to make them look better. I really want as few overlaying instances of, of indicators as possible. Really just want to know the price. You know, and if you can remember, I had mentioned that a lot of indicators are basically emotional band-aids. You can simulate these things and kind of come to understand that they don't help you predictively. They don't help you with trade entries or even trade exits. They kind of confirm what you would already know from having watched the price, right? And I don't, <laughs> 
if I get stopped on a trade for a loss on my initial entry, or if I'm lucky enough to have made some money, and then I use a protective sell stop to protect my gains, I don't need an indicator to tell me after the fact that I did the right thing because I, I don't have any risk anymore. So why would you care? You could ask me that. Why would you care, Michael? And I would say, I don't. I'm out. For those of you who have nerves or regrets or strong feelings, you might want an indicator on your entry. So if I got in and then you're looking at the various indicators, they kind of, especially the ones that look at price or have price as an input, they only tell you something that you already know because you're in the trade. You bought the breakout, the thing's going up, then the indicators turn and say, ah, oh, things look bullish. And you're like, gee, thanks. I'm already here. I'm already at the party. Why don't you come on in? So anyway, hope that helps, gives you food for thought as you design all this stuff for yourself. And uh, of course, if you have any questions, you can reach out. You know, there's all types of models that you can build in these simulators for you and your clients. You can trade them. You can use them for investing. They help you simulate. Plus, you can Monte Carlo because, as you can imagine, if you're going to run 20 years of data, don't start it on January 1st, right? Because it's not typically when people are starting their investment career. Yes, it's true that in America for employees or otherwise who are participating in Internal Revenue Code Section 401k, those savings plans, that the larger wage earners might get blocked out after a certain amount of, uh, of time in a calendar year because there's a maximum amount in a calendar year that they can defer from their own money, whether it's being matched or not is irrelevant. There's a cap, but it resets at the calendar year. So yes, there are you know, money, new money is coming back in from those folks through their retirement accounts. But, you know, when we're talking about building trading models, we're talking about putting rules to work at any particular time. So the Monte Carlo simulation varies the start date. And the example that I always use here to prove the point is that if you had a, uh, X amount of dollars, say you had 100K, and you invested your money into a, an, uh, an index fund, or a trading strategy that emulated an index fund on October 1st, 1987, you had very different results than if you had waited a month and put that money to work on November 1st, having missed the correction of Black Monday, you see? So the simulation of the Monte Carlo simulation can give you an idea if you had a good strategy but really bad timing. How could that have performed? Okay, so I hope that helps. You want to reach me via email, go ahead. If you are receiving the infrequent email updates that we said, send out, you can reply to one of those emails. And if you want to, you can download the audiobook version for free of the Inner Voice of Trading from martinchronicle.com. And it's free. It's on me. Go get it. Thanks for being here. I'll see you next episode.